This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mysteries of Udolpho, Volume 3, Chapter 5 The midnight clock has tolled, and hark, the bell of death beats slow. Heard ye the note profound? It pauses now, and now with rising knell flings to the hollow gale its sullen sound. Mason When Montoni was informed of the death of his wife, and considered that she had died without giving him the signature so necessary to the accomplishment of his wishes, no sense of decency restrained the expression of his resentment. Emily anxiously avoided his presence, and watched, during two days and two nights, with little intermission, by the corpse of her late aunt. Her mind deeply impressed with the unhappy fate of this object, she forgot all her faults, her unjust and imperious conduct to herself, and remembering only her sufferings, thought of her only with tender compassion. Sometimes, however, she could not avoid musing upon the strange infatuation that had proved so fatal to her aunt, and involved herself in a labyrinth of misfortune from which she saw no means of escaping, the marriage with Montoni. But when she considered this circumstance, it was more in sorrow than in anger, more for the purpose of indulging lamentation than reproach. In her pious care she was not disturbed by Montoni, who not only avoided the chamber where the remains of his wife were laid, but that part of the castle adjoining to it, as if he had apprehended a contagion in death. He seemed to have given no orders respecting the funeral, and Emily began to fear he meant to offer a new insult to the memory of Madame Montoni. But from this apprehension she was relieved when on the evening of the second day Annette informed her that the interment was to take place that night. She knew that Montoni would not attend, and it was so very grievous to her to think that the remains of her unfortunate aunt would pass to the grave without one relative or friend to pay them the last decent rites, that she determined to be deterred by no considerations for herself from observing this duty. She would otherwise have shrunk from the circumstance of following them to the cold vault, to which they were to be carried by men whose air and countenance seemed to stamp them for murderers, at the midnight hour of silence and privacy which Montoni had chosen for committing, if possible, to oblivion the relics of a woman whom his harsh conduct had at least contributed to destroy. Emily, shuddering with emotions of horror and grief, assisted by Annette, prepared the corpse for interment, and having wrapped it in cerements and covered it with a winding sheet, they watched beside it, till past midnight when they heard the approaching footsteps of the men who were to lay it in its earthly bed. It was with difficulty that Emily overcame her emotion, when the door of the chamber being thrown open, their gloomy countenances were seen by the glare of the torch they carried, and two of them, without speaking, lifted the body on their shoulders, while the third preceded them with the light, descending through the castle towards the grave, which was in the lower vault of the chapel within the castle walls. They had to cross two courts towards the east wing of the castle, which, adjoining the chapel, was, like it, in ruins, 
but the silence and gloom of these courts had now little power over Emily's mind, occupied as it was with more mournful ideas, and she scarcely heard the low and dismal hooting of the night-birds that roosted among the ivied balance of the ruin, or perceived the still flittings of the bat which frequently crossed her way. But when having entered the chapel, and passed between the mouldering pillars of the aisles, the bearers stopped at a flight of stairs that led down to a low arched door, and their comrade having descended to unlock it, she saw imperfectly the gloomy abyss beyond, saw the corpse of her aunt carried down these steps, and the ruffian-like figure that stood with the torch at the bottom to receive it. All her fortitude was lost in emotions of inexpressible grief and terror. She turned to lean upon Annette, who was cold and trembling like herself, and she lingered so long on the summit of the flight that the gleam of the torch began to die away on the pillars of the chapel, and the men were almost beyond her view. Then, the gloom around her wakening other fears, and a sense of what she considered to be her duty overcoming her reluctance, she descended to the vaults, following the echo of footsteps and the faint ray that pierced the darkness, till the harsh grating of a distant door that was open to receive the corpse again appalled her. After the pause of a moment she went on, and as she entered the vaults, saw between the arches, at some distance, the men lay down the body near the edge of an open grave, where stood another of Montoni's men and a priest, whom she did not observe till he began the burial service. Then lifting her eyes from the ground, she saw the venerable figure of the friar, and heard him in a low voice, equally solemn and affecting, perform the service for the dead. At the moment in which they let down the body into the earth, the scene was such as only the dark pencil of a domancino perhaps, could have done justice to. The fierce features and wild dress of the condottieri, bending with their torches over the grave into which the corpse was descending, were contrasted by the venerable figure of the monk, wrapped in long black garments, his cowl thrown back from his pale face, on which the light gleaming strongly showed the lines of affliction softened by piety, and the few grey locks which time had spared on his temples, while beside him stood the softer form of Emily, who leaned for support upon Annette, her face half averted and shaded by a thin veil that fell over her figure, and her mild and beautiful countenance fixed in grief so solemn as admitted not of tears, while she thus saw committed untimely to the earth her last relative and friend. The gleams thrown between the arches of the vaults where, here and there, the broken ground marked the spots in which other bodies had been recently interred, and the general obscurity beyond were circumstances that alone would have led on the imagination of a spectator to scenes more horrible than even that which was pictured at the grave of the misguided and unfortunate Madame Montoni. When the service was over, the friar regarded Emily with attention and surprise, and looked as if he wished to speak to her but was restrained by the presence of the condottieri, who, as they now led their way to the courts, amused themselves with jokes upon his holy order, which he endured in silence, demanding only to be conducted safely to his convent, and to which Emily listened with concern and even horror. When they reached the court, the monk gave her his blessing, and after a lingering look of pity, 
turned away to the portal, whither one of the men carried a torch, while Annette, lighting another, preceded Emily to her apartment. The appearance of the friar, and the expression of tender compassion with which he had regarded her, had interested Emily, who, though it was at her earnest supplication that Montoni had consented to allow a priest to perform the last rites for his deceased wife, knew nothing concerning this person, till Annette now informed her that he belonged to a monastery situated among the mountains at a few miles' distance. The superior, who regarded Montoni and his associates not only with aversion but with terror, had probably feared to offend him by refusing his request, and had therefore ordered a monk to officiate at the funeral, who, with the meek spirit of a Christian, had overcome his reluctance to enter the walls of such a castle by the wish of performing what he considered to be his duty, and as the chapel was built on consecrated ground, had not objected to commit to it the remains of the late unhappy Madame Montoni. Several days passed with Emily in total seclusion, and in a state of mind partaking both of terror for herself and grief for the departed. She at length determined to make other efforts to persuade Montoni to permit her return to France. Why he should wish to detain her she could scarcely dare to conjecture, but it was too certain that he did so, and the absolute refusal he had formerly given to her departure allowed her little hope that he would now consent to it but the horror which his presence inspired made her defer from day to day the mention of this subject, and at last she was awakened from her inactivity only by a message from him desiring her attendance at a certain hour. She began to hope he meant to resign, now that her aunt was no more, the authority he had usurped over her, till she recollected that the estates, which had occasioned so much contention, were now hers, and she then feared Montoni was about to employ some stratagem for obtaining them, and that he would detain her, his prisoner, till he succeeded. This thought, instead of overcoming her with despondency, roused all the latent powers of her fortitude into action, and the property which she would willingly have resigned to secure the peace of her aunt, she resolved that no common sufferings of her own should ever compel her to give to Montoni. For Valancourt's sake also she determined to preserve these estates, since they would afford that competency by which she hoped to secure the comfort of their future lives. As she thought of this, she indulged the tenderness of tears, and anticipated the delight of that moment when, with affectionate generosity, she might tell him they were his own. She saw the smile that lighted up his features, the affectionate regard which spoke at once his joy and thanks, and at this instant she believed she could brave any suffering which the evil spirit of Montoni might be preparing for her. Remembering then, for the first time since her aunt's death, the papers relative to the estates in question, she determined to search for them as soon as her interview with Montoni was over. With these resolutions she met him at the appointed time, and waited to hear his intention before she renewed her request. With him were Orsino and another officer, and both were standing near a table, covered with papers, which he appeared to be examining. "'I sent for you, Emily,' said Montoni, raising his head, "'that you might be a witness in some business which I am transacting with my friend Orsino. "'All that is required of you 
will be to sign your name to this paper. He then took one up, hurried unintelligibly over some lines, and laying it before her on the table offered her a pen. She took it, and was going to write when the design of Mentoni came upon her mind like a flash of lightning. She trembled, let the pen fall, and refused to sign what she had not read. Montoni affected to laugh at her scruples, and taking up the paper again pretended to read. But Emily, who still trembled on perceiving her danger, and was astonished that her own credulity had so nearly betrayed her, positively refused to sign any paper whatever. Montoni, for some time, persevered in affecting to ridicule this refusal but when he perceived by her steady perseverance that she understood his design, he changed his manner and bade her follow him to another room. There he told her that he had been willing to spare himself and her the trouble of useless contest in an affair where his will was justice and where she should find it law, and had therefore endeavored to persuade rather than to compel her to the practice of her duty. I, as the husband of the late Signora Mantoni, he added, and the heir of all she possessed. The estates, therefore, which she refused to me in her lifetime can no longer be withheld. And for your own sake, I would undeceive you respecting a foolish assertion she once made to you in my hearing that these estates would be yours if she died without resigning them to me. She knew at that moment she had no power to withhold them from me after her decease, and I think you have more sense than to provoke my resentment by advancing an unjust claim. I am not in the habit of flattering, and you will therefore receive as sincere the praise I bestow when I say that you possess an understanding superior to that of your sex, and that you have none of those contemptible foibles that frequently mark the female character, such as averse and the love of power, which latter makes women delight to contradict and to tease when they cannot conquer. If I understand your disposition and your mind, you hold in sovereign contempt these common failings of your sex. Montoni paused, and Emily remained silent and expecting, for she knew him too well to believe he would condescend to such flattery unless he thought it would promote his own interest. And though he had forborne to name vanity among the foibles of women, it was evident that he considered it to be a predominant one since he designed to sacrifice to hers the character and understanding of her whole sex. Judging as I do, resumed Montoni, I cannot believe you will oppose where you know you cannot conquer, or indeed that you would wish to conquer, or be avaricious of any property, when you have not justice on your side. I think it proper, however, to acquaint you with the alternative. If you have a just opinion of the subject in question, you shall be allowed a safe conveyance to France, within a short period. But if you are so unhappy as to be misled by the late assertion of the Signora, you shall remain my prisoner till you are convinced of your error. Emily calmly said, I am not so ignorant, Signor, of the laws on this subject as to be misled by the assertion of any person. The law, in the present instance, gives me the estates in question and my own hand shall never betray my right. I have been mistaken in my opinion of you, it appears, rejoined Montoni sternly. You speak boldly and presumptuously upon a subject which you do not understand. For once I am willing to pardon the conceit of ignorance, the weakness of your sex, too,
from which it seems you are not exempt, claim some allowance. But if you persist in this strain, you have everything to fear from my justice. From your justice, Signor, rejoined Emily, I have nothing to fear. I have only to hope. Montoni looked at her with vexation, and seemed considering what to say. I find that you are weak enough, he resumed, to credit the idle assertion I alluded to. For your own sake I lament this. As to me, it is of little consequence. Your credulity can punish only yourself, and I must pity the weakness of mine which leads you to so much suffering as you are compelling me to prepare for you. You may find, perhaps, Signor, said Emily with mild dignity, that the strength of my mind is equal to the justice of my cause, and that I can endure with fortitude when it is in resistance of oppression. You speak like a heroine, said Montoni contemptuously. We shall see whether you suffer like one. Emily was silent, and he left the room. Recollecting that it was for Valancourt's sake she had thus resisted, she now smiled complacently upon the threatened sufferings, and retired to the spot which her aunt had pointed out as the repository of the papers, relative to the estates, where she found them as described. And since she knew of no better place of concealment than this, returned them, without examining their contents, being fearful of discovery, while she should attempt a perusal. To her own solitary chamber she once more returned, and there thought again of the late conversation with Montoni, and of the evil she might expect from opposition to his will. But his power did not appear so terrible to her imagination as it was wont to do. A sacred pride was in her heart that taught it to swell against the pressure of injustice, and almost to glory in the quiet sufferance of ills, in a cause which had also the interest of Valancourt for its object. For the first time she felt the full extent of her own superiority to Montoni, and despised the authority which till now she had only feared. As she sat musing, a peal of laughter rose from the terrace, and in going to the casement she saw, with inexpressible surprise, three ladies, dressed in the gala habit of Venice, walking with several gentlemen below. She gazed in an astonishment that made her remain at the window, regardless of being observed, till the group passed under it. And, one of the strangers looking up, she perceived the features of Signora Livona, with whose manners she had been so much charmed the day after her arrival at Venice, and who had been there introduced at the table of Montoni. This discovery occasioned her an emotion of doubtful joy, for it was matter of joy and comfort to know that a person, of a mind so gentle, as that of Signora Livona seemed to be, was near her. Yet there was something so extraordinary in her being at this castle, circumstanced, as it now was, and evidently by the gaiety of her air, with her own consent, that a very painful surmise arose concerning her character. But the thought was so shocking to Emily, whose affection the fascinating manners of the Signora had won, and appeared so improbable when she remembered these manners, that she dismissed it almost instantly. On Annette's appearance, however, she inquired concerning these strangers, and the former was as eager to tell as Emily was to learn. They are just come, Mamswell, said Annette, with two signors from Venice, and I was glad to see such Christian faces once again. 
but what can they mean by coming here? They must surely be stark mad to come freely to such a place as this. Yet they do come freely, for they seem merry enough, I am sure. They were taken prisoners, perhaps, said Emily. Taken prisoners, exclaimed Annette. No, indeed, mademoiselle, not they. I remember one of them very well at Venice. She came two or three times to the seniors, you know, mademoiselle, and it was said, but I did not believe a word of it, it was said that the seigneur liked her better than he should do. Then why, says I, bring her to my lady? Very true, said Ludovico, but he looked as if he knew more, too. Emily desired Annette would endeavor to learn who these ladies were, as well as all she could concerning them, and she then changed the subject and spoke of distant France. Ah, mademoiselle, we shall never see it more, said Annette, almost weeping. I must come on my travels, forsooth. Emily tried to soothe and to cheer her with a hope in which she scarcely herself indulged. How, how, mademoiselle, could you leave France, and leave Monsieur Valancourt, too? said Annette, sobbing. I, I am sure, if Ludovico had been in France, I would never have left it. Why do you lament quitting France, then, said Emily, trying to smile, since, if you had remained there, you would not have found Ludovico? Ah, mademoiselle, I only wish I was out of this frightful castle serving you in France, and I would care about nothing else. Thank you, my good Annette, for your affectionate regard. The time will come, I hope, when you may remember the expression of that wish with pleasure. Annette departed on her business, and Emily sought to lose the sense of her own cares in the visionary scenes of the poet. But she had again to lament the irresistible force of circumstances over the taste and powers of the mind, and that it requires a spirit at ease to be sensible even to the abstract pleasures of pure intellect. The enthusiasm of genius with all its pictured scenes now appeared cold and dim, as she mused upon the book before her, she involuntarily exclaimed, Are these indeed the passages that have so often given me exquisite delight? Where did the charm exist? Was it in my mind, or in the imagination of the poet? It lived in each, said she, pausing. But the fire of the poet is vain, if the mind of his reader is not tempered like his own, however it may be inferior to his in power. Emily would have pursued this train of thinking, because it relieved her from more painful reflection. But she found again that thought cannot always be controlled by will, and hers returned to the consideration of her own situation. In the evening, not choosing to venture down to the ramparts where she would be exposed to the rude gaze of Montoni's associates, she walked for air in the gallery adjoining her chamber. On reaching the farther end of which she heard the distant sounds of merriment and laughter. It was the wild uproar of riot, not the cheering gaiety of tempered mirth, and seemed to come from that part of the castle where Montoni usually was. Such sounds at this time when her aunt had been so few days dead, particularly shocked her, consistent as they were with the late conduct of Montoni. As she listened, she thought she distinguished female voices mingling with the laughter, 
and this confirmed her worst surmise concerning the character of Signora Levona and her companions. It was evident that they had not been brought hither by compulsion, and she beheld herself in the remote wilds of the Apennine, surrounded by men whom she considered to be little less than ruffians, and their worst associates amid scenes of vice, from which her soul recoiled in horror. It was at this moment, when the scenes of the present and the future opened to her imagination, the image of Valancourt failed in its influence, and her resolution shook with dread. She thought she understood all the horrors which Montoni was preparing for her, and shrunk from an encounter with such remorseless vengeance as he could inflict. The disputed estates she now almost determined to yield at once, whenever he should again call upon her that she might regain safety and freedom, but then the remembrance of Valancourt would steal to her heart and plunge her into the distractions of doubt. She continued walking in the gallery till evening threw its melancholy twilight through the painted casements and deepened the gloom of the oak wainscoting about her, while the distant perspective of the corridor was so much obscured as to be discernible only by the glimmering window that terminated it. Along the vaulted halls and passages below, peals of laughter echoed faintly at intervals to this remote part of the castle, and seemed to render the succeeding stillness more dreary. Emily, however, unwilling to return to her more forlorn chamber, whither Annette was not yet come, still paced the gallery. As she passed the door of the apartment, where she had once dared to lift the veil, which discovered to her a spectacle so horrible that she had never after remembered it, but with emotions of indescribable awe, this remembrance suddenly recurred. It now brought with it reflections more terrible than it had yet done, which the late conduct of Montoni occasioned, and hastening to quit the gallery, while she had power to do so. She heard a sudden step behind her. It might be that of Annette, but turning fearfully to look, she saw, through the gloom, a tall figure following her, and all the horrors of that chamber rushed upon her mind. In the next moment she found herself clasped in the arms of some person and heard a deep voice murmur in her ear. When she had power to speak, or to distinguish articulated sounds, she demanded who detained her. It is I, replied the voice. Why are you thus alarmed? She looked on the face of the person who spoke, but the feeble light that gleamed through the high casement at the end of the gallery did not permit her to distinguish the features. Whoever you are, said Emily in a trembling voice, for heaven's sake, let me go. My charming Emily, said the man. Why will you shut yourself up in this obscure place, when there is so much gaiety below? Return with me to the cedar parlour, where you will be the fairest ornament of the party. You shall not repent the exchange. Emily disdained to reply, and still endeavoured to liberate herself. Promise that you will come, he continued, and I will release you immediately. But first give me a reward for doing so. Who are you? demanded Emily, in a tone of mingled terror and indignation while she still struggled for liberty. "'Who are you that you have the cruelty thus to insult me?' "'Why call me cruel?' said the man. "'I would remove you from this dreary solitude to a merry party below. "'Do you not know me?' Emily now faintly remembered that he was one of the officers who were with Montoni when she attended him in the morning. 
I thank you for the kindness of your intention, she replied, without appearing to understand him, but I wish for nothing so much as that you would leave me. Charming Emily, said he, give up this foolish whim for solitude and come with me to the company and eclipse the beauties who make part of it. You only are worthy of my love. He attempted to kiss her hand, but the strong impulse of her indignation gave her power to liberate herself, and she fled towards the chamber. She closed the door before he reached it, having secured which, she sunk in a chair, overcome by terror and by the exertion she had made, while she heard his voice and his attempts to open the door without having the power to raise herself. At length she perceived him depart, and had remained listening for a considerable time, and was somewhat revived by not hearing any sound when suddenly she remembered the door of the private staircase, and that he might enter that way, since it was fastened only on the other side. She then employed herself in endeavouring to secure it, in the manner she had formerly done. It appeared to her that Montoni had already commenced his scheme of vengeance, by withdrawing from her his protection, and she repented of the rashness that had made her brave the power of such a man. To retain the estate seemed to be now utterly impossible, and to preserve her life, perhaps her honour, she resolved, if she should escape the horrors of this night, to give up all claims to the estates on the morrow, providing Montoni would suffer her to depart from Udolfo. When she had come to this decision, her mind became more composed, though she still anxiously listened, and often started at ideal sounds that appeared to issue from the staircase. Having sat in darkness for some hours, during all which time Annette did not appear, she began to have serious apprehensions for her, but not daring to venture down into the castle was compelled to remain in uncertainty as to the cause of this unusual absence. Emily often stole to the staircase door to listen if any step approached, but still no sound alarmed her. Determining, however, to watch during the night, she once more rested on her dark and desolate couch and bathed the pillow with innocent tears. She thought of her deceased parents, and then of the absent Valancourt, and frequently called upon their names, for the profound stillness that now reigned was propitious to the musing sorrow of her mind. While she thus remained, her ear suddenly caught the notes of a distant music, to which she listened attentively, and soon perceiving this to be the instrument she had formerly heard at midnight, she rose and stepped softly to the casement, to which the sounds appeared to come from a lower room. In a few moments, their soft melody was accompanied by a voice so full of pathos that it evidently sang not of imaginary sorrows. Its sweet and peculiar tone she thought she had heard somewhere before. Yet, if this was not fancy, it was at most a very faint recollection. It stole over her mind amidst the anguish of her present suffering, like a celestial strain, soothing and reassuring her. Pleasant as the gale of spring that sighs on the hunter's ear when he awakens from dreams of joy, and has heard the music of the spirits of the hill, Ocean. A. R. But her emotion can scarcely be imagined when she heard sung, with the taste and simplicity of true feeling, 
one of the popular airs of her native province, to which she had often listened with delight when a child, and which she had so often heard her father repeat. To this well-known song, never till now, heard but in her native country, her heart melted, while the memory of pastimes returned. The pleasant, peaceful scenes of Gascony, the tenderness and goodness of her parents, the taste and simplicity of her former life, all rose to her fancy and formed a picture, so sweet and glowing, so strikingly contrasted with the scenes, the characters, and the dangers which now surrounded her, that her mind could not bear to pause upon the retrospect, and shrunk at the acuteness of its own sufferings. Her sighs were deep and convulsed. She could no longer listen to the strain that had so often charmed her to tranquillity, and she withdrew from the casement to a remoter part of the chamber. But she was not yet beyond the reach of the music. She heard the measure change, and the succeeding air called her again to the window, for she immediately recollected it to be the same as she had formerly heard in the fishing-house in Gascony. Assisted, perhaps, by the mystery which had then accompanied this strain, it made so deep an impression on her memory that she had never since entirely forgotten it, and the manner in which it was now sung convinced her, however unaccountable the circumstances appeared, that this was the same voice she had then heard. Surprise soon yielded to other emotions. A thought darted like lightning upon her mind which discovered a train of hopes that revived all her spirits. Yet these hopes were so new, so unexpected, so astonishing, that she did not dare to trust, though she could not resolve to discourage them. She sat down by the casement, breathless, and overcome with the alternate motions of hope and fear, then rose again, leaned from the window, that she might catch a nearer sound, listened, now doubting, and then believing, softly exclaimed the name of Alancourt, and then sunk again into the chair. Yes, it was possible that Valancourt was near her, and she recollected circumstances which induced her to believe it was his voice she had just heard. She remembered he had more than once said that the fishing-house, where she had formerly listened to this voice and air, and where she had seen penciled sonnets addressed to herself, had been his favorite haunt, before he had been made known to her. There, too, she had herself unexpectedly met him, it appeared, from these circumstances, more than probable that he was the musician who had formerly charmed her attention, and the author of the lines which had expressed such tender admiration. Who else, indeed, could it be? She was unable, at that time, to form a conjecture as to the writer. But, since her acquaintance with Valancourt, whenever he had mentioned the fishing-house to have been known to him, she had not scrupled to believe that he was the author of the sonnets. As these considerations passed over her mind, joy, fear, and tenderness contended at her heart. She leaned again from the casement to catch the sounds, which might confirm or destroy her hope, though she did not recollect to have ever heard him sing, but the voice and the instrument now ceased. She considered for a moment whether she should venture to speak, then not choosing, lest it should be he, to mention his name, and yet too much interested to neglect the opportunity of inquiring, she called from the casement, Is that song from Gascony? 
Her anxious attention was not cheered by any reply. Everything remained silent. Her impatience increasing with her fears, she repeated the question. But still no sound was heard except the sighings of the wind among the battlements above, and she endeavored to console herself with the belief that the stranger, whoever he was, had retired before she had spoken, beyond the reach of her voice, which it appeared certain had Valancourt heard and recognized he would instantly have replied to. Presently, however, she considered that a motive of prudence, and not an accidental removal, might occasion his silence, but the surmise that led to this reflection suddenly changed her hope and joy to terror and grief, for if Valancourt were in the castle, it was too probable that he was here a prisoner, taken with some of his countrymen, many of whom were at that time engaged in the wars of Italy or intercepted in some attempt to reach her. Had he even recollected Emily's voice, he would have feared, in these circumstances, to reply to it in the presence of the men who guarded his prison. What so lately she had eagerly hoped she now believed she dreaded, dreaded to know that Valancourt was near her, and while she was anxious to be relieved from her apprehension for his safety, she still was unconscious that a hope of soon seeing him struggled with the fear. She remained listening at the casement till the air began to freshen, and one high mountain in the east to glimmer with the morning. When wearied with anxiety, she retired to her couch, where she found it utterly impossible to sleep, for joy, tenderness, doubt, and apprehension distracted her during the whole night. Now she rose from the couch and opened the casement to listen. Then she would pace the room with impatient steps, and at length return with despondence to her pillow. Never did hours appear to move so heavily as those of this anxious night, after which she hoped that Annette might appear, and conclude her present state of torturing suspense. End of Volume 3, Chapter 5